Good morning. If you'll take your Bibles again and turn to John chapter 5, we'll continue our study of John's Gospel. If you are here last week, you know we were studying about uh, Jesus healing a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And the reaction to that on the part of the religious leaders was not so good. And here we get it in uh, its entirety. Jesus here is speaking to them. And it's a long <clears throat> text. When I get... Uh, <laughs> I've gotten old. So a couple of uh, years ago, uh, Jody said, I'll just make it big for you. So she made it big for me, but that's a lot of making big right there. <clears throat> so I'll read the big stuff, you read the small stuff, and we'll get through it. Beginning in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these He will show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Son or Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life, but does not come again into the judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself and has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. On my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my will, my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that my Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His Word abiding in you, for you do not believe the One whom He sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about Me. 
Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you have not Uh, You do not have the love of God within you. I have come in My Father's name, and you do not receive Me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God, only God? Do not think that I accuse you before the Father. There is no one who accuses you. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Years ago, a friend of mine was preaching a week-long mission conference to ministers. The first night he was seated at dinner next to a man who said he is the angriest, most uptight man he's ever met. And what's amazing about that is my, my friend had been in ministry for 40 years. And if you're in ministry, you meet a lot of angry, uptight people. And yet he said this guy was the angriest, most uptight guy he had ever met. They're eating and the guy says to him, you know something, I never sin anymore. Now in the Bible, the Bible talks about sanctification or being made pure or holy in two ways. First, it says everyone who is redeemed is found in Christ. Jesus is our sanctifier. We are immediately made holy in God's eyes. That's one way. The second way is that the Holy Spirit is perfecting us, making us, conforming us into the image of Christ. And this guy at dinner says to my friend, that work in my life is done. I no longer sin." And my friend said, mustering all the pastoral care he could muster, he said, are you crazy? He said the guy didn't think very that was very funny because he said to me, you know, holiness is not a laughing matter. I'll have you know that God has given me total victory over sin in my life. My friend said, what are you going to do about your pride? The fact is, if God has made you holy and pure, you probably would never know it. It's kind of like wearing a medal for someone who's gotten an award for being humble. As soon as you wear it, they take it away from you. My friend said, I don't remember what happened next, but all I know is he left the table and never saw me the rest of the week, which was fine for me. He was angry and uptight. A couple of years ago, or a couple of years later, my friend said he had read about that man. That man had left the ministry because of a serious sin in his life. My friend said it wasn't the sin that was the problem. His problem was he didn't think he had any. And ladies and gentlemen, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, that's a problem. Those who have the biggest problem with Jesus Christ in their lives are those who are not willing to admit, I am a desperately needy sinner. Now, over the history of the church, there have been those who have tried to characterize the Gospel of John in a number of different ways. Some look at Jesus' seven I am statements and say it's an I am kind of Gospel. Others say it's seven miracles, and so it's a miracle of seven, or it's a Gospel of seven miracles. But there is one way that the Gospel of John has been characterized over the history of the church, which is perhaps the most profound, and that is it is the Gospel of rejection. No Gospel writer writes more about the reasons for the, uh, the rejection of Jesus by the religious leaders than John. 
And in chapter 5 and in chapter 6, they both begin the same way. With a tremendous miracle, and yet the Jews, the religious leaders of the day, see that miracle and totally misperceive it. In fact, what they should have known, they don't know. And what they do know does not include in any way a sense of self-awareness. The reasons they don't believe is because they don't have a clue about the extent of their own sin. Now, if anybody should have known, it was ones who had the law. Because the primary purpose of the law is to show us how corrupt we are. And yet these men who memorized it have no clue of their own basic problem, and that is their own sin. Do you hear about the guy who bought a red Ferrari? As soon as he bought it, he, he loved it, but he was worried. And his worry was that there are other people on the road. He knew that anybody could just sideswipe him, and that would be thousands of dollars. And so he decided that he'd get some religious person to come and bless his car. So he calls the priest and says, Father, would you come bless my new red Ferrari? And the father says, what's a Ferrari? He hangs up. He tries a rabbi. He says, Rabbi, would you come and bless my new Ferrari? And the rabbi says, how can I come? I've never heard of a Ferrari. He hangs up on him. Finally, in desperation, he calls a Presbyterian minister and said, would you come and bless my new red Ferrari? The Presbyterian said, you mean the 16-valve, water-cooled turbo made of aluminum body with rack and pinion series? Is that the car you have? The man said, yeah, that's it. Would you come and bless it? And the Presbyterian said, uh, yeah, but what's a blessing? <laughs> Just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. What they should have known about themselves is they were sinners. They looked at the law every day of their life. And yet John says in this chapter 5, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's at the feast. The feast of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. It was the feast where the Jews celebrated the first fruits of God's blessing. And you know what the first fruits are? Forgiveness. Where is Jesus? He's at a pool that's called Bethesda, which means the place of mercy. And around this pool, John says, there are invalids. There are people who are lame. There are people who are blind. And there are people that are paralyzed. And the religious leaders of the day would have seen those people and said, the reason they're there is because they are corrupt sinners. They believe that God would bring blindness into a person's life and lameness into a person's life and paralysis because of their own sin. And look where that pool is. It's, around, it's near the sheep gate. The gate into which they'd bring the sacrificial animals. For what reason? To take away their sin. The substitutes. Animals die rather than them. So get the picture. Jesus is, around, is at this pool in the place of mercy, near the place where the sacrificial animals come in, and He's the Lamb of God. The Jewish leaders are all around. They're looking at, with contempt at Jesus and contempt at these people. They believe that these people are sinners. That's why they're there. But the truth is, 
The greatest sinners around that pool are the ones standing there who have religious badges on. I mean, think of it. They are so blind, they don't understand the the identity of Jesus. They think He's a false teacher. They're so lame, they can't walk in the ways of the Lord. They're so paralyzed that they will never pick up their bed and follow Jesus into a new life. And John tells us that in the midst of that scene, when they say to Jesus, you are making yourself equal with God, Jesus does something fascinating. He doesn't turn and leave. He doesn't slip into the shadows where He sometimes does that. Instead, He stands and He challenges them. In 28 verses, He launches into one of His longest discourses in any of the Gospels. And in this discourse, what He is saying to them is, you say that I'm saying about myself that I'm God. And you're right. I am because I am. And then He gives them ten proofs of His deity. You say, oh no, I know you. Ten proofs. That's a long talk. Nope. I decided to condense them into four points. Taking a, a, a verse that Jesus utters to the woman at the well. Remember what she, He said to her? Anyone that drinks this water will be thirsty again. In other words, anybody that drinks that H2O will get thirsty again, but I tell you, the water I give to them will become in them a spring of living water. They'll never thirst again. And what John wants us to see is how thirsty these religious leaders are. Remember what he says to the woman at the well? After he says, go call your husband, and she goes into the village and says, let me tell tell you all, or let me come, I want to show you this man who knows all about me. What Jesus says to her is, I forgive you. I'm taking all the shame away from you in your life. You no longer have to try to find your identity and your value in some random man. You can find everything you need in me. You have a hole in your soul and I can fill it. Now that's exactly what He says to every one of us. Especially the religious. He's talking about a hole in the soul. He's met that hole in that woman's soul, but these men still have it. And Jesus challenges them in four particular ways. Let's dig in. First of all, notice their thirst. Look at verse 39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about Me. Do you see what He's saying? You have made the Scriptures and the study of them an end in itself. You know, there are a lot of people that do that. There are people that can tell you the middle word of the middle verse of the middle chapter of the middle book of the Bible. On Jeopardy, anything related to the Bible, they can answer. I mean, there are people I know that know so much about the Scriptures, they can quote it until the cows come home, and yet they don't know the one about whom the Scriptures speak. Jesus said, the Scriptures speak of Me. And yet you've made them an end in themselves. Notice the word He uses, search. That doesn't just mean a cursory look. That means to be deliberate 
and diligent in study. It means to take time. Blood, sweat, and tears knowing the Scriptures. They did that in spades. Someone once asked Mark Twain, why do you spend so, so much time writing your newspaper articles? He said, because I, I, I need to eat. In other words, I work hard because i got to eat. That's exactly what these religious men did all their lives. They studied the Scriptures exclusively. Why? Because they had to eat. They studied the Scriptures so people would come to them with all of their issues, with all of their questions, with all their concerns, but principally they studied it because they were thirsty. Carl Jung, the great Swiss psychologist, once said, the world today is suffering from a neurosis of emptiness where the goal of life has been perverted. It's gone dead in our hands. Do you know when he said that? 1961. I mean, you could say exactly the same thing today. There is a neurosis of emptiness where the goal of life has been so perverted it's died in our hands. But you know what? You could have said that in Jesus' day as well. I mean, think of it. God has given these men His Word. There were not many parchments available, but they were available to them. They had scroll upon scroll. They had qualified. They had passed their GED. They had gone to grad school. This is postdoctoral work. They knew it. They had heard the Word. They had read the Word. They had made the Word an end in itself. And Jesus says, all those words speak of Me. Think about what He's saying. Standing right in front of you is God. The one who's speaking to you is God in the flesh. And yet, you can't see Me for who I am. Second, notice not only their thirst, notice the tap. You knew they would be alliterated, so tap. Okay, Thirst, tap. Look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. 35 years ago, I knew a man by the name of Jim Byers. He's gone to be with the Lord, but I loved his name Byers, especially in light of what I'm going to tell you. He was a farmer. He was a horseman. and He used to be in charge of the melon stables in Rector, you know, right outside Ligonier. But early in his life, he had an interesting job. He bought right-of-way property. He'd knock on somebody's door and say, hey, by the way, i got bad news. You know, that section of your ground, we're going to take that, but I can get you money. And most people say, yeah, that's great. So one day we're sitting at his farm and he looks over and says, you know the toughest people to deal with when you're trying to get something done? I said, no. He said, don't you know? Haven't you lived long enough to, to discover this? The toughest people to deal with when you're trying to get something done are teachers. Teachers are tough. I said, but Jim, you're married to a teacher. He said, I know. He said, but when I was out knocking on doors, whenever I would meet somebody who gave me an argument, it would be a teacher. I'd say to them, listen, they're going to take your land. Why don't you get some money? And they'd argue with me. We'd fight about it. The toughest people in the world to deal with are teachers because they think they know everything. Two months later, two teachers came and joined our church. A teacher couple, oh no. The woman played the piano. 
The man asked questions. In fact, he was sort of the, the uh, skeptic of the church. And I never forget one of his famous questions to me. He asked it all the time. How can you say that Jesus is God when he, the Bible says He's the Son of God? I said, John, that's not a tough Bible study. And I'd start where you would start. And first of all, you talk about the culture of the day. Jews and Greeks, they understood that a son and a father were interchangeable. To deal with one was to deal with the other. There was no distinguishing. He didn't buy that. So then I went to the next argument. How about what Jesus says? And we went to John chapter 5. I said, look at the charge that they're leveling against Jesus. He's making himself equal with God. Jesus says, yeah, you're right, I am. He didn't buy that either. You know why? Because he was a teacher. (laughs) Just like these guys, they're teachers. They think they know everything. We've got the Torah, we've got the writings, we've got the prophets, we've got it all figured out. We are the keepers of the Word, and the Word of God standing right in front of them, and they're so blind they can't see Him. Did you hear about the little boy who went to the grocery store to get some peanuts? Talked to the grocer and said, could I get some peanuts? He said, yeah, they're in the back, in that back room in a big barrel. Just reach in there, take as many as you want, and go ahead, leave. little boy shook his head, no. Of course, he said, listen, you can, I, I give you permission. Just go back, reach into the barrel, take the peanuts, and leave. You, you're, it's good. The little boy shook his head, no. Finally, the grocer gets out behind his cash register, walk, takes the boy by the hand, walks him to the back, reaches into the barrel, gets a big handful, puts them in a bag, Gives it to the boy, and the boy's smiling. He says, hey, son, I said you could go to the back. Why didn't you go to the back? And the little boy said, because I knew if you went, I'd get all I wanted. Size of the hand, you know. That's exactly what these religious leaders want. They're thirsty and they're hungry. And standing before them is the one who can give them everything they want and everything they need. He said, I'm God. I'm the tap but they won't take His hand and they won't walk back all the way with Jesus. They won't do it. Third, notice the test. Look at verse 30. Jesus said, I can do nothing on My own. As I hear, I judge, and My judgment is just because I seek not My own will, but the will of Him who sent Me. See what Jesus is saying? Everything I say, everything I do, is simply living out the will of my Father. Now we said this a couple of weeks ago, and that is this, that in the ancient world, if you wanted to make a claim, you had to have a witness. If you say that person stole something from me, unless you had a witness to back you up, the court would throw it out. You had to have a witness. And Jesus here is talking about it. And notice what He does. And I'm not going to get way into this, but you can check it for yourself. He gives them four witnesses. He says, first of all, there's My Father's witness. Secondly, there's the witness of John the Baptist. Third, there's the witness of My works. And fourth, there's the witness of Scripture. The culture said we need two witnesses. Jesus gives four witnesses, and yet they still don't believe. You know why? because they only believed one witness, and that was themselves. It's like the guy at the pool. Jesus says to him, do you want to be well? And what does he do? He only looks at his own resources and the resources of other people. Nobody there to dump me in the pool. 
You know, think about it. He's waiting for a ripple and the rippler there is there. Just like this guy. Just like these guys. The only witness that matters to them is their own witness. They can't look beyond themselves. Now, I need to tell you something that... I mean, I don't know if I need to, but I'm going to anyway. I want to tell you that in all the years that I've lived, I believe there's no greater collection of people that can be navel-gazing than in the church. That can believe that you, can, you and I can sit in judgment of others because somehow we, have, we know Jesus, we know His Word, and that somehow makes us you know, Dr. Phil. And what these guys are doing is they're rejecting the witness of the Scriptures, the witness of Jesus' own work, the witness of John the Baptist, and the witness of God the Father because their own witness in their own lives is the only thing they listen to. That's always the test. Jesus said, I do nothing, I say nothing that is not what I hear and see My Father doing. In other words, My will is subordinate to His. That's the test. If you and I want to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, it will only come by our submitting our wills to His. In other words, saying, I don't know Jack. I know Dillard, but I don't know Jack. (laughs) You alone know what I need. And then fourth and finally, notice the tragedy. Look at verses 46 and 47. For if you believe Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You know the worst part about knowing Jesus? It's seeing all the thirsty people all around you that don't want to drink. They won't drink. I can't tell you the number of times I've talked to people when they find out I've got Reverend in front of my name, if they don't run away screaming, and if, they, if they're smart, they usually do, but if they stay and we get into any discussion about faith, they'll begin to tell me, some of these people will begin to tell me some hurt that they've had as a result of the church. Maybe it's a minister. Maybe it's a church. Maybe it's somebody who named the name of Jesus who acted like the devil. Whatever it is. They're angry. They're resentful. A lot of people don't drink because of that. For others, it's basic anger. Every Christian they know, hate. they hate. <laughs> For others, it's their possessions. For others, it's their pride. But all around us are people that are thirsty, desperately thirsty, but they won't drink. Whatever the barrier, their thirst remains. Now notice what Jesus does in the face of people who think they have no sin. He doesn't leave. He doesn't cower in the corner. He doesn't slip out by another way. He stands and He challenges them. And you know what Jesus is saying in these 28 verses? Deal with it! I am who I am. I'm everything you need and want. And you don't believe it. Tough. Deal with it.
In the early 1950s, C.S. Lewis wrote this, uh, tr- this collection of children's books called The Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you don't read, you see movies, you got the movies. <laughs> and the great thing about it was Lewis wrote these, he wrote it for kids, but most of the people I know that have been impacted by it are adults. And in one of those books, well, let me, before I get to that, uh, you know, there's, there's this place called Narnia, which is an imaginary kingdom. And the children are there for 50 years. And, and Narnia's cool. It's a great place. Whatever temperature you like best, that's Narnia. <laughs> whatever climate, whatever, de- whatever uh, humidity you want, that's Narnia. <laughs> Always sunny, but not too hot. <laughs> and in Narnia, there's a lion by the name of Aslan that is the, uh, is the figure of Jesus. So Lewis makes Jesus to be this lion of Narnia, Aslan. And the kids love Aslan. They climb on his back, they play with his mane, but they also know there's another side to Aslan. He can be mean. So one day, uh, Jill makes her way through Narnia and she's desperately thirsty. And she looks at this babbling brook. It's clear water, beautiful, must be cool. She wants a drink and she's ready to get to the, to the uh, brook, but she notices Aslan's in the way. And so she asks him this question, do you eat little girls? And he said, I eat little girls and little boys. I eat men and women. I eat worlds and universes. She thinks a minute and says, well, will you step aside so I can get a drink? And he said, no. She said, won't you just move a little bit so I can get to that water and drink? I'm very thirsty. He said, no. Finally, after about 30 seconds, she stomps her foot and says, then I'll be thirsty! He said, you be thirsty. And he never moved. That's what Jesus is saying in this text. Gentlemen, If anybody ought to know how to quench their thirst, it's you. But you're blind, and you're lame, and you're paralyzed. And the one who stands before you has what you desperately desire. But you won't admit it. You can't see it. And that's exactly what Jesus will say to anyone who seeks to live their lives calling their own shots. That's what He says to those who sit in judgment of others. That's what He says to those who think that they can quench their own thirst. You know what He says to them? Deal with it. You say, how could He be so cold? That's not cold. That's just true. You know why you can say it? Because He's greater than Moses. He's God Almighty. He's God in the flesh who says in the midst of our blindness and our lameness and our paralysis, I'm everything you need. Deal with it. And by the grace of God, we can. Think about that. Amen.